Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and ceiling wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Don't forget the forward slash on the chat, because then you don't get in there, and then I get dirty looks from from Ravinder, so it's forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. I never, ever give you dirty looks. I'm always <laughs> sweet and loving and stuff like that. Um, yeah, yes. you've got property that you want to sell me, I know. I... <laughs> <laughs> That's cheeky. Um, yes, do come join us in the chat room. It's a great chat room, a great group of people, great conversation, very stimulating, entertaining, and I think it adds a whole new dimension to the show. So if you have the ability to, do come in and join us in the chat room. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. If you don't have the ability right now, if you're driving, you definitely don't want to be on your computer at the same time. Uh, you can always come back and look in our ar- in the archives, and then you'll see um, any I- extra information that we posted up in the chat room at that point. Okay, in this week's spotlight, I wish to address the notion of blame. Years ago, I conducted the first ever double-blind study utilizing subliminal communication to change the behavior of an incarcerated population. We ran some fairly extensive psychometric tests, but discovered nothing new. We had high scores in self and social alienation, but that was expected. The first phase of our study was to determine what sort of messages might change the attitudes and beliefs among inmates, and thereby lower hostility levels, increase reflectivity, and if we were lucky, even interrupt the recidivism rate. We were working with younger offenders, 25 and under, incarcerated in a minimum security youth offenders facility. I gathered our volunteers and explained what the technology was and how it was supposed to work. By design, the affirmations on the technology would enter the inmate's stream of consciousness, his self-talk, and this talk would become how he spoke to himself. Changing the way the inmate thought resulted in a change in his expectation which in turn altered his perceptions. In the end, the world as he had known it would be different. After the explanation, I enjoyed the opportunity to visit with the inmates, and it was then that I first discovered what became a magic bullet. You see, when asked, the inmates typically rationalized their behavior away on the basis of blame. It wasn't their fault. Excuses ranged from the dramatic such as my mommy was a prostitute, the neighbor mainlined me at age 12, my daddy was an alcoholic, and so forth, to anger at society for the perceived injustices suffered by those born to poverty without hope of escaping through lawful means, or so some would say. Almost always these explanations were grossly exaggerated, but they served as an explanation 
or justification for illegal behavior. Blame is a confining perception. It is based on the belief that we are helpless victims. As long as we blame, there is an implicit assumption that we remain victims. We are therefore disempowered from actions that may remove us from the victim role. Now, please understand me. This is not in any way to suggest that there are not victims in the world. But it is to argue that so long as we choose to remain victims, we are essentially unable to move on. There are multiple ways in this world to be tied up. For example, someone can bind us with a rope or chain. But we can also choose to attach a thread to a doorknob and refuse to pull it hard enough to break it or to let it go an action that essentially tethers us in place. Blame is one such thread that many refuse to break. When we discovered this common mechanism among our youth offenders, we build affirmations around three messages, three magic messages, if you will. Those three messages are, I forgive myself, I forgive all others, I am forgiven. And we added a group of self-esteem-building affirmations to boilerplate our forgiveness set. But subsequent research has repeatedly verified the value of these three simple statements when internalized as part of our own true belief. The results of our study were so impressive that the prison system installed voluntary libraries throughout all their facilities, including maximum security. Indeed, the system we designed was eventually cloned out to a number of other prisons where it performed well as well. Bottom line, forgiveness is the key to letting go of blame. Once you surrender your need or addiction to blame, you find a whole new place where many things formerly impossible become possible. Making the impossible possible is something we can all do when we remove our own self-limiting beliefs. There is no belief in my mind more damaging than the idea that it's okay to refuse to relinquish blame. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, this has to be one of my favorite subjects. I think it's one of your most uh, important teachings because it stretches into every single area. Um, you're not free. You, you can't do anything if it's somebody else's fault. You can't do anything if you're blaming yourself. That's why you have the forgiveness affirmations on all of your programs. I forgive myself. I forgive all others. I am forgiven. And just getting that deeply into your own psyche is incredibly empowering. I've done a number of um, experiments on myself using, you know, the forgiveness concept. And, uh, yeah, the more you forgive, the freer you become. That's exactly what happens. You become free. And for those of you listening, you know, years ago, about 15 years ago now, I decided, because I was lecturing on this subject, and it was our best-selling program, a program called Forgiving and Letting Go, I decided that it was so important that the program ought to be free. And for the last 15 years, we've given it away. You can go to eldentaylor.com, and there you'll see at the top of the page... Uh, a tab that says forgiveness. Click on that tab and you can get this program. You can download it yourself free. Uh, there's absolutely no cost of any kind whatsoever. It's yours. That's how important I think this issue is. And 
And again, repeated double-blind studies throughout the country and, and in foreign countries, for that matter, like Germany and Mexico, we have repeatedly verified the power of this statement. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last live show featured Ravinder, and we spoke about self-sabotage. Indeed, Ravinder offered a free program for those listening to the show. Now, unfortunately, that offer has now expired, but very many of you took advantage of it. Donna wrote, thank you for the free program. Daniel wrote, thank you, Dr. and Mrs. Taylor, for the gift. I look forward to listening to it and continuing with our other programs as well. By the way, great show, and kudos to Ravinder Taylor for an incredible job of hosting last week's program. You like that, don't you? I do. CB wrote, great show. Thanks for sharing so much, Rav. Charles wrote, I absolutely loved your show on self-sabotage. Ravinder is so genuine and open that she makes it possible for all of us to admit our failures. Thanks for this great show. See, you're a living example. I work at it. I work at it. It is nice to, it is nice to hear that stuff. Okay. Andrea wrote, nice to hear Ravinder's story. Melanie wrote, Eldon Taylor, you are blessed to have such a wonderful life partner. Well, you are so very right about that, Melanie. Thank you. Mike wrote, the InterTalk programs are fantastic. The technology is patented and double-blind tests at places like Stanford University. The programs help to reprogram your mind for success, life, health, and more. And yes, I use them, and they work. Thank you. Rodolfo wrote, your material is fantastic. I've been listening since 1991. Thank you. Renee wrote, I love your products. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise with our special guest, Professor Anders Erickson. So let me tell you a little about our guest. K. Anders Erickson, Ph.D., is presently Conradi Eminent Scholar and Professor of Psychology at Florida State University. After his Ph.D. in Sweden, he collaborated with the Nobel Prize winner in economics, Herbert A. Simon, on verbal reports of thinking leading to their classic book, Protocol Analysis, Verbal Reports as Data. Currently, he studies the measurement of expert performance in domains such as music, chess, nursing, law enforcement, and sports, and how expert performers attain their superior performance by acquiring complex cognitive mechanisms and physiological adaptations through extended deliberate practice. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Anders Erickson. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, it's indeed my pleasure. I, you know, I loved your book. I absolutely loved your book. I could keep you here for an entire day asking you questions. But, you know, you've been researching performance for 30 years. What motivated you to make this your area of specialty? Well, you know, I think uh, even as an adolescent, I think I was really interested in, you know, improving my own thinking and trying to understand, especially people that I admired, you know, how they would be able to think about things that would allow them to be so successful. So when I started my dissertation work in Sweden, uh, I, I basically ap applied this method of 
giving people problems, but having them think out loud while they were solving them in order to basically understand, you know, how individual differences and the ability to solve problems actually can be revealed by the different types of thoughts that you generate while you're trying to solve a given problem. Okay, you know, now, most people think that the greats, the truly successful best, are just gifted people to begin with. You argue that we all have the ability to become gifted and illustrate this in part with a story of Mozart. Please share this story and your interpretation with our audience. Well, uh, I, I think people can't understand how they would be able to do achieve certain types of performances. And I guess we start the book here by talking about Mozart, uh, which was famous as a kid for being able to actually name the note that somebody would play by hitting a key, arbitrary key on the piano. But most interestingly, he was actually able, from other sounds, to tell what kind of tones were contained in various sounds that people generated. And, and you know, he was young, and, and it turns out that people have tried to uh, be able to attain this ability as adults and found it almost impossible. <coughs> and... Uh, I guess what we found when we actually analyzed this ability and reviewed the research is that this is an ability that any child can uh, achieve between ages three and five. But you need to have the training during that period because as your brain develops, as you get older, you, you really don't have that ability to attain that ability to recognize individual tones you will actually be focusing in on relationship between tones or what people refer to as relative pitch. But a, a recent study in Japan tested and, and trained children in that age range and found that all the children were able to attain that ability. But only between the ages of three and five. So you're saying that Mozart uh, was trained at this early age and that's what gifted him? Uh, that's the explanation, and that's the reason why you see a relationship between very successful musicians and uh, that they actually have absolute pitch. But, you know, it's not a perfect relationship by any means, but, but there is that relationship that led people to believe that this ability was kind of a sign of somebody having musical gifts, uh, and that does not seem to be the case. And, in fact, uh, children in uh, China who basically learn tonal languages uh, and, and they basically acquire between ages you know two and five that ability of distinguishing the same syllable spoken in different tones uh, again confirming this idea that this is an ability that you know anyone can have and and, and basically if they're being given the right kind of training uh, during that, critical age period between three and five. Okay, so now, you know, we know from the research, of course, that it's much easier uh, for a child to learn uh, multiple languages at very early stages than it is for an adult. Research indeed 
indicates that when you attempt to learn uh, a foreign language as an adult, you actually are you're forcing a development in a adjacent area to the language, uh, our typical language areas in the brain. Is this also true with music? I mean, you can learn it, uh, but it's just going to be harder? Well, it turns out that the ability here to have perfect pitch uh, is maybe very important for somebody who is a singer who actually would have to start singing, you know, without actually being accompanied by music. But uh, it turns out that we have many very successful musicians who don't have perfect pitch. So it was more that people noticed the correlation, but nobody really was able to establish that if you didn't have perfect pitch, you couldn't be a musician. Uh, so, so it's one of those curious abilities that that people were just sort of hypothesizing might be related to musical gifts. Uh, now I think we really, especially with the work here of Suzuki, you know, really find that if children are encouraged here to generate music with their parents, you know, they can acquire music skills very similarly to how they learn how to speak their first language. And, and, and actually, as parents, you know, providing children with these opportunities, I think is something that could actually be very helpful, not just to the child, but to allowing the parent interacting now with the child and generating uh, some, you know, really exciting musical experiences. Yeah, I've seen research that suggests that um, young people who do develop um, multiple language skills and early music skills um, tend to score higher on IQ tests, do better in performance uh, levels. Do you think that moving the arts out of our early education uh, has created a problem with uh, with perhaps limiting the kind of creativity that we might otherwise have? I think that's a very interesting and difficult question. And uh, my personal view, and, and, and this is more an opinion, uh, because I do think the reviews I've seen suggest that there is a lot of kind of correlations between the parents who are actually providing musical training to their kids and other factors that may actually influence their success in school. Uh, so so that presents a problem, drawing inferences about, you know, whether kids get musical training, if they're actually doing better than the average kid, you know, there may be many factors involved there. Right. Correlation now, is not causation. Would, but now, now Go ahead. What, what, what we're kind of arguing is that if you can help a child acquire, you know, a high level of skill in some domain, whether it's music, dance, maybe chess or or some skill, where they can actually start, you know, thinking independently and actually feel like they can be in control over and understanding a, a given domain. Uh, I think that, you know, really helps them see how much they can actually improve if they're given now the right kind of support and training by a teacher. And that experience in itself, I think, can really help somebody when they're in adolescence and starting to think about a, a professional, uh, you know, choice. 
that then they can apply the same kind of principles uh, to excel and really be successful in whatever profession they, you know, embark on. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed uh, Professor Rosen about his book, I Disorder, and he has studied, you know, the impact of technology uh, for the past 30 years. And uh, he's convinced, uh, as a result of using fMRI, watching young people's uh, brains that when they enter this state they consider boredom today, that it's exactly the same state that you and I might use if we're attempting to be reflective and solve a problem or think through something. And and they find that state unacceptable. So they, they do what they can do to avoid it, to move away from it. And, of course, you know, his, his conjecture is that that is going to damage, um, in, in the long run, the kind of creative intelligence that we see from young people. Do you think a possible antidote to this boredom we hear from all these young people today because of their iPhones or iPads, all, all of this constant stimulation, that if a parent were to practice what you're suggesting, that it would begin to teach them to use this time for creativity, uh, for concentration, for practice, and they would find boredom less likely um, to be something they experience when when they're in that state? I, I think that's a very interesting uh, proposal and idea. And, and, and I would basically, based here on my own, you know, uh, kind of growing up, I remember uh, my parents were religious, so I spent a lot of time as a child, you know, sitting in and in and, and, and sermons and and I remember that that was difficult for me. So what I ended up doing was to generate games with myself and problems for myself. And sometimes my father was actually giving me a couple of problems here before we went to church so I could be thinking about them. And, and I guess I believe that if you have, you know, helping uh, the child get that ability to actually, you know, think and reason and reflect on things, then you're actually, you know, empowering them so they can do something that generates joy. And, and I personally think it's so interesting to see those children who become successful often as musicians are those who early on actually can sit down by the instrument and actually play, and they play music that they themselves can really enjoy. And I think that idea of being able to engage in an activity where you yourself are able to produce something that is enjoyable. And I think that's, you know, the complete opposite of being bored, where you are more or less just sort of fighting off, not having any sort of interesting thoughts. But, uh, you know, in this state, uh, where you're actually exploring now and, and sometimes setting new goals for yourself, you actually provide meaning and focus and concentration. And I think that is something that children would really benefit from learning from an early age. And the key is not to push them to do that for too long. Because I think when you start out with children, 10 minutes per day is about as much as they can actually exert that concentration. And then over time, you know, they will start being able to increase it. But basically, 
exactly being sensitive to how long you can have them be in that concentrated state so you will actually be able to foster that so maybe when they're adolescents we're talking about you know a couple of hours interesting interesting i think obviously your father had a a bead on this early when he gave you problems for you to work on i mean i had the same experience uh, sermons in church, and I had church three times a day until I was 15 years old, I guess. Um, you know, that's an awful lot to ask children to just sit still. But giving them, what kind of a problem can I ask did he give you? Well, you know, it, it's a little while back, but, but basically, I guess, you know, I was talking to him, and, and he kind of knew what kind of problems I would like to think about, um, and I remember actually one thing that I actually worked on during many sermons, and that was that my father told me that you can actually move your ears. Uh, so basically, uh, and if you keep your hand close to your ears, you can actually feel what you need to be doing in order to actually move them. And and I remember my my brother also uh, worked on moving his ears uh, during some of the sermons. You know, this may almost sound a little bit sacrilegious, but but anyway, I, I think that general idea here of providing something where you can actively be engaged in an activity and you're setting goals for yourself and, and basically, you know, that transformed this time into something that gives it meaning and focus Right. Okay. We've got a hard break here on this. My family thinks I'm crazy because I wiggle my ears. <laughs> okay. We're speaking with Professor Anders Erickson about his life and new book, Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, written with co-author Robert Poole. Okay. We have a video for you today featuring our guests. So join Revender in the chat room. If you're listening on the dial, remember you can check the chat room out when you're next in front of your computer by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Seems to have 
And welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Anders Erickson about his work and book. And this is a great book. I mean, if, you, uh, if you've got a family, if you've got children, you want to give them a head start. If you uh, don't feel that you have climbed as high as you might, if there is an ambition that you have, you want to take up music, for example, or chess, you've got to read this one. It's a great book. Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise by Professor Anders Erickson and his co-author Robert Poole. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. By now you know music psychology is a hobby of mine and it's a new field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. All right, we just played some of Downtown, performed by Petula Clark. Now, I understand you requested a version by Diana Ross and the Supremes, but we were unable to find that one. So, Professor, please tell us, why is this music important to you, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, uh, it, it basically was the piece of music that best captured the year that I spent in the United States as a 15-year-old, uh, I was part of the American Field Service program where, you know, students were being brought in from different countries and then given the opportunity to spend a year in the United States. And for whatever reason, that that piece of music, you know, kind of associates all those experiences that I had. And I remember when I came back to Sweden, I was asked to give a talk about my year in the United States, and I used that song both in the beginning and the end of my presentation. And and I think maybe that year in the United States, you know, it's certainly one of the most important years of my life, when I was basically transported from one culture into a different culture. And I think for the first time, I really saw much more of what was me. You know, when you're living in a culture, it's kind of hard to know what is you and what is the environment, uh, but when you get that dramatic shift of environment, you know, you actually can start seeing here that you're responding in the same way, uh, so you really need to confront now 
that this is part of you, and if if it's something you want to change, you know, uh, then you need to sort of pay attention. Oh, cool. You know, one of these days I'm going to assemble all of this information into a book. Uh, but that that answer, you know, where you paired an important event in your life to a particular sound of music. Uh, excuse me if I if I sound patronizing. I certainly don't intend it toward you. Uh, is much more erudite than when you bring someone on and they give you a highbrow piece of classical music to listen to, and then when you ask them, they say, oh, well, I just always like that music. Uh, it's, it's as though they have listened to the show and they know that I'm going to ask them about the importance of this music. And, you know, well, we all know that intelligentsia listens to classical music or, or jazz. They never really listen to something like rock and roll, right? B.S., huh? I love it. <laughs> well, especially, I think, you know, looking at your entire development, um, uh, you know, I, I enjoy all sorts of music, um, but I think, you know, there's only a small number of pieces that, you know, really have that significance uh, in terms of my own life. You know, and interestingly, I don't know if you're interested in this or not, but when we look at the most important pieces of music, uh, it's always what you hear at the age of 14 or 15 that that is... That, the kind of music, well, we have some research that if you happen to, uh, for example, be in a coma, we can play music that will bring people back from um, lost states. And for a few minutes, they're they're completely aware, completely awake. And, and uh, it's as though, you know, they're completely lucid. Uh, there is no cognitive a dysfunction of any kind whatsoever, and they drift back, but it's always this music from an era around 14 and 15 years of age. Interesting. Yeah. All right, there are many stories of gifted athletes who were natural at their sports. So are you saying that there's no such thing as a gifted performer per se, that in order to be a gifted performer... Uh, it takes uh, a special set of practice or a special kind of exposure? Well, you know, I, I think uh, what we're finding here, and, and when you identify somebody who can perform at a very high level, and then you start asking, you know, how did that ability develop? And you basically go back in time, uh, and there are uh, people, including ourselves, who well, we ask them, you know, when did you start, you know, uh, at which age did you actually engage in any kind of training that was related now to this ultimate performance? Uh, what we find is that, you know, there's no sudden performance, uh, at least that I've been able to see here in the 30 years that I've been sort of looking for this kind of idea here that people would realize that they spontaneously can do something you know, that somehow would seem to be genetically pre-prepared, uh, even though they haven't had any relevant training. Uh, so, so we always find, you know, that training seems to be a critical aspect. And, and in fact, when we look at musicians, it seems that that deliberate training, you know, when you're actually setting aside time to really work on trying to improve something, uh, 
and, and that is kind of time that really requires that focus and concentration and effort. And it's quite different from, you know, you just sitting around with friends, if you're reasonably skilled musicians, to make music. It's sort of the same difference here between people who play soccer games, uh, which does not seem to be actually, you know, very helpful to improve your performance, as compared to when you're actually engaged now in some kind of training activity, you know, to build strength or build endurance or something, where you actually have an explicit focus and you're deliberately, you know, pushing yourself to be able to reach a higher level. I remember a study, uh, Professor, uh, basketball shooting, free throw, um, where three groups were were separated and they were controlled for, you know, average number of uh, correct shots out of, I, I don't recall now, but out of 10, say, and this is from the free throw line. One group um, visualized shooting basketballs. One group practiced shooting the basketball for 30 days, and one group did nothing. And when they brought them back, the group that visualized shot almost as well as those that had practiced every day for 30 days. How much of what you're talking about is a visual exercise, a neuromuscular or, or, or yeah, a, a neural kind of training, a visual kind of training, and how much is is actually motor? Uh, I'm doing it. Well, according to our research, I guess it wouldn't make a difference what level of skill that you're dealing with, and and I guess some recent research kind of indicates that if you are actually able to image the activity well enough that you actually are able. To you know, be highly skilled, you can get benefits. So, for example, a musician who's going to play a piece, you know, they can just look at the music and more or less play it in their mind uh, as a way of practicing and preparing for actually performing the piece of music. However, if you're not a skilled musician, uh, there are probably going to be very little gains for you looking through the notes, uh, basically, because you can't really, uh, you know, image exactly what's involved so you can identify potential problem issues when you're going to perform it. Uh, so, so my feeling is that imaging may be an important aspect, and it sort of depends on, most specifically, what is it that you're trying to achieve with your imaging? So, and I usually have this kind of test. So what is it that you can do after you've engaged in this activity that you couldn't do before? And if you can pinpoint that, then that makes sense, that basically this activity now served an instrumental purpose of actually elevating your performance. You know, there's something that, that has bothered me, and maybe you've got an answer for this. Um, you know, there's a notion out there that... Uh, that somehow, you know, we have packed between our ears a lot of information that we're unaware of. And we see that, perhaps, with acquired savants and newfound abilities. So someone like Jason Padgett, who can draw perfect fractals freehand, a geometry uh, genius, or Derek Amato, the pianist who suffered... Or Rick Owens, the artist who experienced a brain trauma. Alonza Clemens, the sculptor, uh, 
who suffered a severe fall, and so on and so on. These people suffered a head injury and came away geniuses with exceptional abilities. Does this not suggest at least uh, that some forms of performance skill uh, may reside in the brain and can manifest without practice or training? Well, you know, I think that's fascinating. And as a scientist, I would say that if we were to have you know, really compelling evidence on the performance before the injury and immediately after the injury and as a function of time. Uh, when I've examined at least some of these cases, and, and I, I have to uh, confess here that I'm not familiar with the details of all of the cases that you talk about, but at least in some of these cases, uh, there was unclear exactly what performance the individual had prior to the accident. And maybe even most important, it seemed that the accident now encouraged the individual to spend time on this particular activity. And then at some point, they were actually exhibiting, you know, very uh, kind of superior performance. The problem is that we don't know how much of this skill that was eventually displayed was actually, you know, available immediately after the injury or when basically the injury kind of return to a point here where, you know, you, you basically had recovered in some way from the actual accident. So I, I would love to basically find the evidence uh, that basically, uh, you know, would allow us to actually monitor the development of these abilities. I know from a couple of cases where uh, basically individuals have proposed that sudden emergence of ability that when people actually went back and interviewed individuals uh, that would have some kind of access to what this individual was doing, uh, they found kind of a different story. So there is basically, uh, there was a claim here that uh, one savant was suddenly able to play the piano. And, and basically when they studied this more carefully, it turns out that this Savant was living, I guess, with an aunt or something. And, and they were actually playing the piano together for three or four years. But basically, mm. now, that was not counted. Uh, so what actually did happen was that this Savant actually played something that he had heard on the radio. So this was the first time he actually played something that wasn't basically instructed. And that's, I guess, interesting, but it, by knowing here how this preparation of the training during the three or four years preceding where they were, you know, playing and singing together, would seem to me to be an important piece to understand how this final performance here of being able to play something that he had heard on the radio uh, was possible. Interesting. I know I spoke with Jason Pageant uh and he was in a karaoke bar one evening, came out, and he lives in Seattle, came outside, was jumped, uh, robbed, uh, hit over the head. He came to in the hospital after a couple of days and, you know, mathematical wizard. And his education would indicate that he was not uh, 
anywhere near that. But that doesn't mean that just because you got a bad grade that you didn't somehow absorb the information either. So that would be an interesting area to follow up. Let's do this. Discuss the interplay between genetics, environment, and personality as you have found it to be a role in the success of the best of the best. So, so our approach is to identify people who are really performing at an exceptional level and then basically work backwards to kind of see here at which point were they able to do things or basically did they develop mechanisms that would make them different from other individuals? And then we were asking the follow-up question. So is there anything that they were doing differently about their training that could possibly explain now how they acquired these mechanisms? And when we actually work backwards in that way, uh, we don't really find a lot of evidence here that, you know, in, uh, these children were able to do something amazing before training started. In fact, it seems that it's very, very hard to predict which individuals will be successful when they're adults based on their performance when they start these activities, which is typically very early, you know, that's between three and five is when a lot of individuals start in ballet, music, uh, and, and the other kinds of activities. They may not start the specific sports that they excel in, but a lot of kids will actually start you know, doing various kinds of sports and, and engage in training that may actually be you know, important for them as they're later on selecting to specialize in, in a particular sport. Okay, we've talked about sports a lot. One of the areas of your book that I found really interesting had to do with the relationship of IQ and chess players. I mean, because, you know, generally you think of the nerds as the chess players, you know, they, they have their chess. Uh, and, and so you associate that with IQ. Um, but if I understood your book correctly, many of the best chess players don't have a particularly high IQ. Flesh that out for us. Right. So what we found in a lot of domains, and that's actually true in music as well as chess, that when you start out, so basically the first time you're playing chess or you're introduced to a musical uh, instrument or you know, you're being tested here on various musical tests, people find that there is a correlation now between how well you do on the traditional IQ test and how well you do on these activities. But as you get more skilled, so you actually acquire now acquire a performance here where you can do things that you couldn't originally do, we find that then the correlation here with IQ disappears. It seems that you're acquiring specialized skills that are really driving your ability to perform. So there's no longer this reliance on whatever you were relying on when you performed well on the IQ test. That seems to carry over to these other kinds of tasks. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time left, and, and we've talked generally kind of roundabout. So I'm going to go very specifically to your approach now. Please share with us the Top Gun approach to learning and your Think Aloud method. So the Top Gun approach, one of the problems when we're actually wanting to train and do things in real world is, you know, there are consequences. You know, a doctor who starts 
doing surgeries on patients, you know, basically there are consequences for the patient. So it's difficult for doctors to get that appropriate training. And I guess the extreme example is if you're at war and you basically are meeting enemies that is going to try to shoot you down, uh, if you get shot down, then basically you won't have a second chance here to kind of keep improving. So what they found was that if people survived, you know, five to ten interactions with enemies, the probability that they would keep surviving future was so much greater. Now they developed, basically, while there was an intermission in the Vietnam War, a training for only naval pilots. So they were actually now flying, and they actually could simulate the enemy aircrafts by having trained pilots facing them. But instead of shooting missiles and and shots, they were actually just taking pictures of what happened. So in the afternoon, they could go through and look at the tapes. So these pilots could now actually learn from their mistakes without actually being killed. And what they found that when the, you know, basically Vietnam War resumed, the naval pilots were actually reducing now their loss rates by an order of six. So it used to be about two enemy aircrafts for everyone that they uh, were uh, losing. And, and the new ratio was 12 to 1. Wow. But interestingly, the Air Force that did not engage in this kind of training, you know, they were still at the 2 to 1 ratio that they had before uh, basically this uh, training was started. Very interesting. Professor, we have about one minute, and I want everybody to know how to reach out to you, learn more about your work and ideas, uh, presentations that you may make, uh, where to get your book and papers and so forth. So please take a moment and share your contact information with our audience. Right. The, probably the best way to contact us is uh, through a website that my co-author Robert Poole and his wife have set up. And that is, uh, it's uh, basically peakthebook, in one word, dot com. Uh, and, and there you will find contact information and you can basically uh, submit email questions and other kinds of things. So that probably would be the easiest way to reach me. Teach, T-E-A-C-H, the book, uh, uh, so dot com. Peak, uh, peak, uh, oh, peak, P-E-A-K, the book, T-H-E, book, B-O-O-K, good, dot com. Good. I'm glad I repeated you because I was in putting it incorrectly. Peakthebook.com. I, I would highly recommend this book to all of you out there listening. It is a great read. And, uh, you know, you owe it to yourself. You've got one life. Live it the best you can. I want to thank you for your work, Professor Erickson, and for your willing to share it with us. Thank you. Well, I so enjoyed talking to you. And, and thank you again here for having me on the show. Our pleasure indeed. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. A special thanks out there to our producer, Eric Ryder. He makes this so easy for us. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters.
Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.